right. Good to see you guys again. So uh, last session, I gave some of you a $1 bill. Some of those were real. Some of them were fake. I'm just curious, has anyone spent their real $1 bill? All right. And it worked, right? Good, good. So when I handed those out, um, I did mention, as you recall, my concern was that someone would accidentally put that $1 bill in their wallet or purse and then try to spend it. And that, well, that's a federal crime, and that can get you in trouble. And so that's why I warned you to be really sure that you didn't uh, try to spend the fake $1 bills. And what we're doing in this series of sessions is we're considering a kind of counterfeiting that is not illegal, but it actually has um, greater consequences than printing fake money, and that is counterfeit Christianity. Now, some people do this intentionally, but most people are pretty unintentional about this. And I think the reason is because there's just a lot of confusion about what it means to be a Christ follower. And so we're trying to clear up that confusion, not because we want to um, go out and be deputized as God's secret service agents out there trying to uh, identify who's fake and who's not in their Christian life. That's not our business. Our business is to be clear ourselves on what it means to be a Christian and then make our decisions based on that clarity. So that's the goal of this. And then, again, just to, just to be sure you're very clear as we work through this, I want you to um, realize that the Christians are not the moral elite. I would think you realize this, but just to make sure, to be a Christian does not mean, you know, you've kind of, you've hit the top rung of um, morality, and therefore you're a Christian. Actually, those, those who have become Christians are the individuals who have come to some conclusions about who Jesus Christ is. And those conclusions have led them to make some decisions about Jesus, and those decisions have begun to change them. Now, the test of authenticity that we're looking at is uh, a 2,000-year-old document written 20 years after Christ walked the earth and told everybody what it really meant to follow him. So there's, there's no uh, layering of confusion about what it actually means. This, this is what Jesus would say it means to be a follower of him. And this document is the New Testament book of Colossians, and we're looking at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. Now, these 17 verses begin with these two words. We're going to review just a little bit before we jump into the next section. The two words are, if, then. And the idea in these 17 verses is this. If you're a Christian, then this is what's true of you. So the 17 verses that follow these two words list the key identifying features that are present in the life of someone who truly follows Jesus. These 17 verses are divided into three categories, and each category has three key identifying features. So it's uh, a set of three, three sets of three for a total of nine identifiers. So let me again review kind of the outline of where we're working, where we're moving towards. This morning, we talked about the three decisions that Christians make. That's verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. These are the conclusions that Christians come to about who Jesus is. Then, what we're going to begin to look at now next is the three practices that Christians do. This is found in verses 5 through 14. This gets into how being a Christian affects daily life. 
And then we're going to end up looking at the three perspectives that Christians have. That's verses 15 through 17. This is the angle from which Christians approach the challenges of life. And it helps them and gives resources to them as they face the challenges of life. So back to the three decisions. The three decisions that a Christian makes are seen in the three words that precede Christ's name in the first four verses. They all begin with what letter? The letter W, okay? So it's with Christ, then it's where Christ, and then it's when Christ. So Christians look at the evidence of Christ's life. They examine the record of his miracles. They uh, consider the words that he spoke. They look at all of the evidence surrounding the resurrection. And they, they come to a conclusion that there must be a logical explanation for this. And that is that what he said about himself is true. He really is God. He's God in flesh. And so because of that conclusion, they decide to attach their lives to him. They decide to be with him. And that changes over time what's important to them. They begin over time, not immediately, but over time, they begin to value what heaven values. Why? Well, because that's where Christ is. They begin to set their, their minds on things that are above. And then that begins over time again to change their expectations of what they expect out of life, particularly what they expect out of any given day. They are now willing to wait for when Christ returns for everything to work out. Christ isn't here yet. They realize that they don't draw the finish line on anything that's happening in this day because that's not going to occur until when Christ returns. Now, like anyone, they would prefer things to work out great today, but they don't demand that to happen. They're disappointed if it doesn't, but their world doesn't fall apart if their life falls apart because they understand that they're in the middle of this great story that God is writing. And they're going to have to wait till the end to see how it all works out. And they're willing to wait. So that's what we looked at this morning. Now, with these three decisions in place, Christians then go to work on the implications of these decisions. They put in place three practices. And these practices are seen in three lists that are found in verses 5 through 14. This is the longest part of these 17 verses. It's in the practices of the authentic Christian where a lot of confusion exists. And the reason is that some people think that it's the practices themselves that makes one a Christian. And that's not true. It's the decisions that makes someone a Christian. The practices are just the natural result of the decisions that have already been made. They don't make someone a Christian any more than the things that I do to grow my marriage make me more married. You know, I'm, I'm married. The question now is, do the practices of my daily life help grow my marriage or not? Now, if I, if I don't work on building my marriage this week, that doesn't mean this week I'm not married. That means that this week my marriage probably isn't as good of an experience as it could be. And over time, it can get harder and harder. But it doesn't suddenly make me unmarried. No, it was the decision I made 34 years ago that made me married. I'm still married. The question now is, what am I going to do about that decision? How am I going to change because of that? You see, it, it wasn't enough for me 34 years ago just simply to say, I do. The challenge was, when I said I do, 
I had been living as a single man for 25 years. Now, the first set of years, I was just a kid, so I didn't really know much about what I was doing. But as I grew up, I had built patterns in life. And my patterns were pretty selfish. I mean, just, just normal guy, selfish stuff. And so in order for me to be with my wife, to make that marriage commitment, what was happening is I was also deciding I'm going to have to work on some of these patterns if we're going to have a good marriage. Now, as a single guy, I could do pretty much whatever I wanted to do. But as a married man, I discovered pretty early on, uh, not so much. Not because my wife was demanding that I do all kinds of things, but there was now this other person that I was connected my life to and living with that I had to consider as I decided what we should do. And it took me a while to make that adjustment. And becoming less selfish was really a good thing for me. But it didn't happen automatically the day after I got married. I didn't wake up the next morning and suddenly, huh, I'm no longer selfish. No, the, our wedding day was great. It was magical, but it wasn't that magical. I woke up, I was the same guy, still selfish. And so what I had to do is I had to implement new practices, you know, things like using a calendar to plan our time together. I had never used a calendar until I got married. I could always keep in my head the things I wanted to do, and my life was pretty fluid. If I forgot something, I'd just do something else, no big deal. But if you're going to coordinate with another person, like three weeks out, okay, now we need a calendar. So that was a new practice for me. I hadn't used a calendar before that. And then I, I, I learned, you know, it really is helpful to sit down and talk with your wife about the future, about what we might want to do together and what her thoughts were and my, what my thoughts were. And I'd, I'd never done that before. In my own head, I just was like, huh. I think I'll do that as a single guy. And then I did that. And then next I thought, you know what, tonight I'm going to do this. And I did that. But as a married man, that didn't work very well. I couldn't just be walking out the door and my wife say, what are you doing? Oh, I just decided I was going to go to Taco Bell. Do you want to come with? <laughs> oh, yeah, we're married. I can't just walk out the door and do stuff. So, so practices followed those decisions. And that's the important part to understand when it, becomes, when it comes to following Jesus Christ. You make the decision, but now there's practices that need to be put in place to begin to grow in that decision. It turns out what I discovered after I got married is not only was I selfish. Again, to be clear, it's not because my wife was bugging me about this stuff. It, it just became pretty apparent to me early on. Not only was I selfish, but as a single guy, I really didn't do very well at loving in a challenging situation. Let me explain what I mean. I mean, I thought I was, I thought I was just a great guy, a really loving kind of person. But it turned out what it really was is that as long as everybody liked me and everybody agreed with me, I was a great guy. And if someone decided to not like me, I wasn't that great of a guy, because then I would decide I didn't like them. And what happens in marriage, those of you that married know, is you, you pick one person on the entire planet, and you make your commitment of love to them, and then that person eventually 
disagrees with you about something. I was shocked. I, I just assumed part of the deal was two becoming one meant we just agreed on stuff. Now, it didn't take long to think about it to realize, oh, two people never agree on anything for very long. So, you know, she didn't agree with me. And then there were times where, much to my surprise, we didn't like each other very much because we got upset about different things. Now, here's this woman that I just committed my life to, the love of my life, and now I'm upset with her. So I learned early on, I've got some work to do in learning how to love in moments where there's disagreement and moments where we're both hurt and upset because of something. So just because I had stated my undying love to my, my wife, it doesn't mean that my patterns followed suit. The problem was, is up to that point in my life, it was the patterns, the practices of my life that had shaped who I was. It was my history, not my intentions, that kept winning. That's a very, very important uh, statement to understand in life. We tend to think if we are really, really, really serious and we really intend, and especially if we can work up some emotions and maybe shed a tear about our intentions, then it's just going to happen. But what turns out to be true is you will act out of your history more than you will act out of your intentions. And so if you want to change your behavior, you're going to have to build a new history. Not just ramp up really serious intentions and say to yourself, no, this time I really, really, really mean it. I'm going to be a different person. Mm, probably not. You're still going to be you. You're going to have to come up with some different practices. So this, this kind of thing happens, just like what I was describing marriage, happens whenever someone decides to attach their life to Christ. The past is forgiven, and that's a great thing. And the problem is it is not forgotten by us. Those patterns are still a part of our life. And even though we keep intending to be different now, our history keeps winning. So our patterns have to change. And that's what this next section talks about in Colossians. The key word that's repeated in verses 5 through 14 is the word put, P-U-T, put. You put some things to death. You put some things away. You put off some things. And you put on some things. Now, each put is at the beginning of a list of common long-term patterns of behavior that must now be put or placed in a different location in your life if you're going to be with Christ, if you're going to follow up and continue in this decision that you made. A few years ago, I, uh, I came home from work to, um, and walked in the front door, and to my surprise, the living room had been completely rearranged. I mean, everything was different. The couch, which had been up against the same wall for 15 years, had been put at an angle in the middle of the living room. I didn't know. I, I didn't know. I thought maybe Rebecca was cleaning something. But I could tell that, you know, all the tables and everything was set in place, and I could tell 
this is a different arrangement. This is not the first time she's done this. She's al- I've learned that she's always working on a new and better way to arrange everything. And she can be working on it for years, and then suddenly one day, there it is. A different arrangement. The two chairs that we sit in all the time had been put in one corner. Now, thankfully, I'm not as selfish as I was, you know, it was probably about 30 years ago then when we got married. But immediately I walked in and I said to myself, oh, I don't like this. This is not right. I mean, anything, I mean it, it doesn't say when you buy a couch, it doesn't say do not put this at an angle, but it should. There, I mean, the, there's a straight edge that belongs up against the wall that also has a straight edge. I don't know what the angle is about, but I just, I didn't like it. And the reason was not because it was a bad arrangement. Actually, over time, I began to realize, huh, this really makes sense. But the reason I didn't like it was what? For 15 years, I'd been sitting in the couch that had been placed in that position. And if we're going to watch TV or talk to friends, I don't know if I can do it with my neck at an angle. But it worked out fine. But it took me some time to get used to it. So when you attach your life to Christ, he has a different set of values. And that calls for a different arrangement of the things in your life. What has been a comfortable arrangement of your life over the years now needs to be arranged. Now, it may not be a comfortable arrangement. It just may be a familiar arrangement. But you'd still prefer familiar to something new. But now that you've decided to be with Christ, what that means is, kind of like in my marriage, he's going to say, okay, now we've got to rearrange some stuff inside of you. We've got to put some things in different place. And like me, with our living room, that usually is met with some resistance. Not because so much we disagree with it, but we're kind of used to the old ways. So the three put lists in this next section are designed to accomplish a very massive shift in our life over time. This is not a one day rearranging of your life and it stays in place proposition. This is practices that you will work on until the day you die and you will keep putting these things back in place and then they'll start slipping back to where they were and you'll, no, no, The couch goes here. This thing in my life, it goes here. You'll be working on this. And so let me describe the shift that is going to occur over time for the authentic Christian. Before Christ, all different kinds of things are true of us, but for the most part, we tend to love things and use people. Now, I learned this from Harold Bullock, a good friend of mine. Many of you know him. Before Christ, we love things and use people. After Christ, we are to learn how to love people and use things. That is a massive shift. Now, I've learned that in our culture, kind of like me when I was single, most people tend to think that they're pretty loving. But when you look at what love really is and requires, we're not that loving at all. What we tend to be is using people. And if they stop allowing us to use them, then the deal is off. Well, that's not love. 
That's using them to our own ends. And then, rather than loving people, we love things. We, we, we form these hard attachments to something in this world. And we begin to worship that thing. So we decide to be with Christ. And that begins to shift what's important to us. And Jesus says, okay, now let's begin that massive shift on the inside where I'm going to teach you as you work on these practices how to love the things in this world less, how to use the people in this world less, and how to love them more. Again, that doesn't occur overnight. It isn't just a decision. It begins as a decision, but it happens or does not happen in the patterns of our life, in the practices of our days and our weeks. Now, the first of the three put lists are the patterns that reduce our love of things. This is kind of where it begins. We first have to stop bowing down to all the idols that we formed here in this life. The last two lists are the patterns that help increase our love of people. So that's what I'm going to look at after the dinner session. But we're going to begin in this session looking at put list number one. This is the list that helps us begin to put to death the things in this world that we are attached to. So here's what it says, Colossians 3, 5 through 6. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. So let's work our way through this. Put to death what is earthly in you. So first of all, what is earthly? Well, it's the things that belong here and can't leave. They're earthly. You know, this building is earthly. It's really helpful. I'm glad. There's lights, there's heat, but it's not going anywhere. It's stuck here to earth. We can't, can't transport it to the next life. The money in my bank account, the $1 that you just got this morning, that's earthly. You can spend it on other earthly stuff. You can exchange it for other earthly things, but it's not leaving here. It's not, it's not going into the next life. My house is earthly. So the question, first question is, why would we want to put to death the things on earth? Because we need those things. I need my car. That's how I got here. I need money. That's how I put gas in the car to get here. I need my house or someplace to live. So why would we want to put them to death? So the problem isn't the earthly things themselves. They're not evil. They're just things. Just cars and houses and dollar bills and chairs and buildings and whatever else. It's just things. So as long as we live here, we're going to need earthly things. The problem is that we all have tended to move some of these earthly things from objects that we use, even objects that we enjoy, to objects that we attach ourselves to and begin to worship. We all do this. This is natural. This is not the weird among us. This is the everything, everyone among us. We do this. And in doing so, whenever we elevate something here beyond what its value really is, and we begin to give it God-level value in our hearts, what happens is we now have taken something earthly and we have moved that into our hearts. It's not just out there 
We're not just using it. We're not just enjoying it. We're not just grateful for it. It's now on the inside of us. And we become so attached to those things that once we let them in our hearts, we have a hard time getting them out of our hearts. And the reason is that what is earthly is now, as it says in this passage, it's in you. It's not outside of you. It's in you. It's taken up residence in your heart, in the core of who you are. And, and, and as a result, you now need it, not just to get to work. You now need it on a soul level, not just to accomplish an earthly function. For example, we need food. We're going to eat some in just a little bit. And the food here so far has been great. Food's good. I'm grateful for food. But you know it's possible to worship food? It's possible to elevate food to the level of, I need food. Not, I'm going to need some food if I'm going to stay alive, but I need food on a soul level. And so lots of people, especially in our nation, you know, they use eating now to handle stress. I've done this. You know, I get stressed and it's like, man, I need something that has chocolate all over it. That'll help my stress. I don't need it because, you know, my body, I'm getting weak. I need some calories. No. Nothing wrong with chocolate, but if I need chocolate, okay, careful, careful. You don't want that chocolate thing getting into your heart. It's hard to get out of your heart. So we'll eat now to handle stress. We'll eat now to feel better when we feel bad. And we don't just do that with food. We do that with almost everything. One of the big things we do that with is money. Well, money is really hard to handle at an arm's length distance. It just, whoop, and it's in our heart. Now we need money, and we're obsessed with money, and we worry about money, and we, it's in us. What is earthly has now entered into our hearts. Sex is another thing. You know, sex is just a part of God's gift of life within proper boundaries. It's the blessing of the future and the present. But boy, especially in our culture, we have bowed down before sex and we worship it. And it now runs so many lives. Or a substance. You know, maybe alcohol, maybe some drug. You know, we need it. And so what has taken maybe an important place in our life in this world has now moved beyond that, and it's now in you, and you can't stop obsessing over it and living for it. Now, the word for all of these kinds of attachments, there's one word in the Bible that describes these. It's, called, it's the word idolatry. It's the last word on this list. By the way, let me just pause real quick. We're getting ready to go through a bunch of lists, and I would say for, for quite a while in, in my own reading and studying of God's Word, whenever I would come to a list in the Bible, I'd kind of check out. Because, you know, lists are, well, they're lists. They're not like, oh, a list. This is going to be fascinating. And then the one word and then another word and then another word and there's no modifier and it's just another word. And so after about three or four words, you're like, next. Okay, now we got a real sentence. But what I've discovered is the lists that are given in the, in the, in the scriptures, 
they they have power power in them. They, they're not just random words. They, God has given these lists, and they describe some pretty incredible things. So I have learned now, as I come to a list, to go, okay, let's try to unlock the mystery of this list. So I would just that's a side note. Just as you read, don't don't autopilot it when you get to the lists. There, there's something interesting usually uh, in the lists. So. We are to um, take a look at these lists. So idolatry is on the, the last word on this list. The definition of idolatry is this, to assign God's status to something in this world. This is my working definition of idolatry, to assign God-level importance to something in this world. Another way to think of it is you put something in the center and then you orbit your emotions and your schedule and your priorities and your life around that thing. If you want to know if something is an idol, if that something is threatened and you can't sleep, it could be an idol. If that something moves and you move, it could be an idol. So it's in the center. You've, you assign God-level status to it. And it's something in this world. So what can be done about this? Now, it would be great if we could just put these objects of worship aside and just say, okay, we're done. I understand now. I've assigned God-level importance to something that is important, but not God-level important. So I'm not going to do that anymore. Check, idol removed. That would be great. The problem is it's in us. We're attached to them. So here's what we have to do. We have to put them to death. Well, that sounds a little extreme. Why death? Well, whenever we elevate something in this world, something that God has created to the level of the creator, what we do is we give it a kind of life in our hearts. It becomes a kind of living thing in us. And these attachments, they have the power that a living thing has. And like all living things, they grow stronger every time we feed them. And they grow weaker every time we don't feed them. So it's not like we can take some big single act against these things that kills them and their power that they have in our life. That's why the, the Greek word here that's used in this passage, the New Testament is written in the Greek language, and so... The Greek word that's used here to describe this put-to-death idea, what it is is there's a couple ways things can be killed. <laughs> and this describes to slowly drain the strength from. So I wish there was some idle gun out there with idle bullets, and you could just walk up to the thing you're struggling with and say, boom, you're dead. There is no idle gun, and there are no idle magic bullets. There's just a living thing now inside of you that you're going to feed or you're going to starve to death. And that's going to take time. And you can begin to starve this thing for two weeks and then suddenly decide to feed it, and it comes back to life. And you're just going to have to keep struggling with this. But... If you're going to grow, you build a pattern of slowly draining the strength from these things. 
to starve to death. So if you're attached to something here on earth, it's going to take more than just one move to sever that attachment. You're going to have to stop nourishing that attachment. Now, this list, as I've said about lists, this list is not a random list of things to stop doing. It's the description. Really, it's a description of the life force of these idols. Idolatry is at the end. That's the description. But everything on this list, the order of them describes how these things grow, the progression of these things. It's a description of the power structure of these living attachments and how they grow as we feed them. So I want you to, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this list in order, and I'm going to give you a description for each of these words as we go through them so that you can see how the, the one affects the next. It's, it is a cascading kind of life power structure. The first item on the list is sexual immorality. The way I would write this down in uh, a, a way, it's, beyond, it's speaking about more than sexual immorality. So I want you to write this down. Number one, we step out of bounds. This is what this, these two words are really talking about. We step out of bounds. So this word, sexual immorality, is one word in the Greek language, and the one word in the Greek language is the Greek word pornea. It's where we get the word pornography from. But what the word means is not just pornography. What the word means is unlawful desire. It basically means a desire that has stepped outside of the boundaries of what God has established. That's what the word pornea means. Now, it's most commonly referred to in the area of sex and sexual activity outside of the boundaries of marriage. But this word can also be translated idolatry. Sometimes it's translated in the New Testament sexual morality. Sometimes it's actually translated idolatry. Now, the reason one word can mean either sexual immorality or idolatry is that whenever we take any desire that we have for food or protection or sex or whatever it is, and we step outside the boundaries that God has established for that desire, we are now elevating that desire above God, and in doing so, we're making it an idol. This was the first sin. Eve looked at the fruit of the tree and said, oh, that looks great. I want that. And so she stepped beyond the boundaries that God had put her on that tree and grabbed a hold of that fruit. And Adam, who was right there with him, with her, saying nothing, didn't stop it. And that's now the template for every sin from that point forward. Our desires want something that's outside of the boundary. And so we step outside of the boundary. We step out of bounds. Now, again, this doesn't just happen with sexual desires. It happens with any desire. It happens with money. You know, we step beyond the financial boundaries that God has given. You know what the financial boundaries that God has given? It's described as contentment. Contentment means however much money you have, be grateful for that. Don't spend beyond that. It's also evidenced in giving. But you know, we're a consumer-based economy. And if our economy is going to grow, people are going to have to step way out of bounds financially. 
And so desire is pumped and people just step out of bounds. And they discover that they've just let an animal loose inside their life. And they spend decades sometimes trying to kill that thing. So we step out of bounds financially. Now, why can't we just cross the boundaries that God has set up in any of these areas and get what we want to get and then just scramble back, kind of like a commando raid, you know, just go get what we want, come back, no, we're good, we're good, and have nothing affected. Why, why does it affect us so much? It's because these desire excursions take over more and more of our life. Every time we go beyond the boundaries, something changes on the inside of us. Why is that? Well, to us, God's boundaries are kind of like any boundaries. They're just arbitrary barriers that for some reason God has set in place to limit our lives. You know, if I were to, let's say, let's say um, the camp kind of drew a boundary, you know, put some paint down and said, nobody cross this line. You'd look at that line and think, why? And there wouldn't be no explanation. It just seems like an arbitrary boundary designed to mess with us. Because now we got to go a different way to get to the cafeteria. That's the way we tend to think of boundaries. It's like, huh, but I, I want that. And God says no. And we're like, why? It's just an arbitrary boundary. But it turns out that God's boundaries are more like the laws of gravity that describe the fabric of reality. So, for example, you may have the desire to fly, but if you act on that desire, you decide to jump off a 10-story window, or 10-story building, rather, your desire is going to take your life. Now, we know that. It's like, oh, okay, well, that boundary is different. That's a real boundary. It's not an arbitrary boundary. But you see God's boundaries on sex, on money, on all these other desires we have, just as real as gravity. His laws are just as real as the laws of what we call nature. The invisible laws of God that govern our desires, like sex and money and food and relationships, are every bit as real as gravity. Cross those barriers, and it'll take your life. Not just, not as fast as your flight off a 10-story window or a 10-story building will. And that's the problem. If as soon as we crossed God's boundary, it was the same effect as jumping off a 10-story building, people wouldn't cross God's boundaries. You know, about floor seven or six, you'd be thinking, yeah, I can't fly. I don't know what I was thinking. This was a really bad idea. But you cross God's boundaries, nothing happens. Looks like my commando raid worked. I went and got what I wanted in the dark of night, and I came back, and nobody knows. Must not be a real boundary. Not as real as gravity boundary. But the barriers that God has established are there for our good. They're, they're like a fence on the top of the 10-story building. Yes, they do limit our freedom, but that's actually a good thing. So this is where it begins. We first step out of bounds. And in doing so, we give something in this world 
life inside of our hearts. And that life now begins to grow. We think we've done a desire excursion and we've come back. Nobody knows. And what we don't know is we've got a new life growing on the inside. And it wants to be fed. So the next thing that happens, the next thing on the list is we go morally passive. We go morally passive. Every Christian, the word, this word is impurity on the, on the list in the verse, but the description of it is we go morally passive. Every Christian I know crosses God's boundaries. It's called sin. I don't know of any Christian who doesn't sin. The reason is we all have a history of fence jumping when it comes to God's boundaries. And that history has a strong pull to it. There's already things alive in us when we decide to follow Jesus. And you decide to follow Jesus, and those things aren't irradiated. <laughs> They're not killed. They're still living on the inside. Now you got the Holy Spirit to help, but they're still living on the inside. So that history has a strong pull, of it, pull to it. But what distinguishes real from counterfeit Christians is not the absence of sin, but whether or not they go morally passive about sin. Counterfeit Christians... They think of Jesus as kind of a magic boundary erasing wand that they can wave over any area of their life, making it okay without change. But authentic Christians are different. Authentic Christians take their struggle with sin seriously, not because they've, they believe, I've got to earn God's forgiveness now. No, they realize they've been forgiven but because they've decided to be with Christ, not use Christ to justify what they want. They want to be with Christ. So they, they want to change. They don't want to be the same people. So this morally passive thing comes from the second word on the list, which is impurity. The Greek word here means to not clean. In some cases, I mean, a, a good way to say this is not take a shower. You don't take a moral shower. You just let moral gunk build up in your heart. Another way to say it is to not prune a tree. This word is also used that way to describe a tree that's been unpruned. So when you do step out of bounds and you do sin, you take a shower. You clean up. You clean up the mess you've made. It starts by confessing your sin to God. You name it exactly for what it is. You confess your sin to God. Then, if it involved some other people, if it's appropriate and it's possible, you clear up the wrong that you've done with the people that you've wronged. You ask them for their forgiveness. You clean up the mess. Then you move on, not in guilt over what you've done, but in gratitude that, wow, you're forgiven. You move on. One of the common thoughts that, that people come to me with as a pastor over the years, especially newer Christians, is they've decided to be with Christ. Part of the reason they've done that is they've realized they've made a mess of their life, and they want a new life, and they're grateful for their forgiveness, and they're all excited about this new life, and then they slip up in some way, probably based on their history. And then they'll come to me and say, you know what? I don't think I'm a Christian. 
I've sinned. I mean, I just feel so awful. I made a commitment to Christ, and then I, I did this? My understanding is none of us can look into each other's hearts and really know what's going on. But my understanding is that the struggle that that person is having probably indicates that they are a Christian. What that means is that there's a Holy Spirit inside of you right now, and he is crying. He is crying. That's why you're feeling so bad. You used to be able to do this and not feel near as bad. I mean, one of the things I've told people that are considering Christ is, let me just give you a warning here. Sin is not going to be near as fun as it used to be. If you decide to sin, you're going to be miserable. So, fair warning. If you really want to keep sinning, you probably don't want to make a commitment to Christ because it's just it's going to torture you. And that's because authentic Christians take sin seriously. They're not perfect, but they take sin seriously. Counterfeit Christians, they justify their sin. They ignore God's laws. They, they see Jesus as a, a magic forgiveness wand to say, I can do whatever I want. That's not what Jesus said it meant to follow him. So authentic Christians not only clean up their moral messes, they prune the things in their lives that lead to sin. Why do we prune trees? Because they, they get overgrown with growth that, growth that takes the nutrients away from producing fruit. Same thing happens to our life. Our lives just get cluttered with stuff. We get overrun with activities that keep us from growing in our relationship with Christ and weaken our ability to fight sin. Now, these activities may in and of themselves not be sin. They just kind of take us to the edge of the boundaries and allow us to lean and look over. And when you're on the edge, all it takes is a stiff breeze of desire and whoop, there you are. So one of the practices that authentic Christians learn over time is I got I to gotta stop walking the border. I got I to gotta build some margin in my life. I got I to gotta get a mile away from that border. I got to stay 100 feet away from that one. And so they start pruning things from their life. They start cutting things in their life that are not necessarily sin. It's just, it's just not a smart thing to do if you're serious about staying on this side of the fence. That's what authentic Christians do. They take moral showers. They confess their sin. And they keep pruning things from their life that just are not helping them in the struggle with sin. So we step out of bounds. This is, this is where it begins. And then we go morally passive. If we go morally passive, then this living thing inside of us, this idolatry thing, goes to the next level. We begin to let go. That's number three. The next one on the list is passion. Now, in our culture, passion is about the only way you can know the true direction of your heart. You know, what are you passionate about? Just do that. Now, passion is not a bad thing in and of itself. But what this is talking about is the decision just to follow your desires, to kind of let go on the inside. In Scripture, that's a dangerous thing to do because not everything that we desire, not everything that we're passionate about is a good thing. So that's what this Greek word means. The Greek word for passion means to let go, just to take your hands off the wheel. 
Now, what if you took that approach when you drove back to Chico? You know what? Let's just passionately drive to Chico. Take the hands off the wheel. Well, you're not going to get out of this valley. Yeah, put your hands on the wheel and direct that thing if you want to stay alive. So if we don't take regular moral showers and we don't confess our sin and we don't actively prune our lives so that we can grow, it's not long before all kinds of wrong passions start gaining influence in our hearts. And the temptation at that point is just, you know what, forget it. Just give up. Just let go. One of the things the enemy on the inside will lie to you and say, you know what, you're hopeless. You might as well just give in. You're probably not a real Christian anyways. Just give up. Just let go. What you're dealing with is level three, idolatry. Just, just let go. But what you need to do is you need to grab a hold of the wheel and get back on track now before you drive your life off the end of a cliff. See, what we, we, we are told in our culture is that you just need to follow your passion. But if you listen to all the spokespeople who tell you to follow your passion, check back in 10 years and see what their life is like. What you will find is wreckage after wreckage at the bottom of the cliffs of life. Now, the reporters who reported on those famous people saying, I just feel passion. They're not going to go to the bottom of the cliff and do a, a documentary on how this person ruined their life. But just follow up with that. Just letting go is a crazy thing to do because our hearts are full of all kinds of awful things. So we need to get, get a hold of ourselves and get back on track. But if we don't, if we let go, the next thing that happens is we lose control. That's number four. That's the next word is evil desire. If you let go, you get to the next word, evil desire. The definition for this is a consuming desire for what is worthless. I mean, I, I have seen many people who have a consuming desire for something that's found in a bottle that's worth $4. It's worthless. But that's all they can see. They didn't start there. That's where this animal grows to. You just lose control. At this point, it's almost impossible to stop the pull of moral gravity down. It's kind of like sledding down an ice, icy hill. You know, you guys that went to bogganing. Or was it inner tubing? Inner tubing. I'm from Canada, so we used to do tobogganing. So, but inner tubing. So you, you start that thing. You, know, you get yourself or maybe a few people on that thing. You push off. You may have half a second to go, wait, 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 wait and stop that thing. But once you're about a foot to two down the hill, you're going, right? Doesn't matter with you say, no, we're offline. Sorry. Gravity has now taken over. Friction is now not your friend. And you're moving at an increasing rate of speed towards something. So you've, you've lost control. You can't stop at that point. And that's what happens as we give ourselves to the things in this world and we let them in our heart, eventually we just, we're kind of along for the ride. Now, even in the middle of the slide, you do have a choice. 
What's the choice? Bail. I don't know if you've ever done that. It can be painful. But I know by experience, it's less painful to bail than to hit the tree at the bottom of the hill. So if that's you, if, if you feel like you, you have lost control in some area of your life, bail. And you know the way you bail? Is you tell someone that can help you. You can't bail all by yourself. Tell someone, humble yourself and tell someone that is serious about sin like you want to be and say, you know what, I'm out of control. I need to tell you, can you, can you f help me find help? Talk to the leaders here if, if you're in that situation. Don't, don't fool yourself into thinking, I got this, I got this. You are on an icy hill. The speed is increasing. You don't got this. Things are out of control. Do the drastic and bail. Tell someone. So now we get to the foundation of the list that drives idolatry, and that is the word coveting. It's at the heart of idolatry. It's what anchors us to this world and convinces us to spend our entire lives living only for what is more and what we can never take with us. We want to do more and more of what we can never take with us. The Greek word, this is fascinating. When I did a study on this word, the Greek word for covet here is a compound word. That means there's two words to it. These are the two words that make up the Greek word for coveting in the New Testament. The first word is hold, and the second word is more. This is what coveting is. I want to hold on to something, and I want more of it. That's what coveting does. Now, the world is unstable, obviously, and we think that if we could just hold on to this, then our uncertain life would stabilize. But here's what happens when you decide to hold on to something with this kind of desperation. When we decide to hold on to something here with God-level white knuckles, the holding is never one way. This is really important to understand. We take a hold whatever it is, and you know what it does? It takes a hold of us. It holds back. Now, we let go, it doesn't. We try to get rid of it, its claws are in us. It won't let go of us. So how do we get rid of the pull of coveting? Honestly, we can never fully get rid of this pull. That's why verse 6 says, on account of these, the wrath of God is coming. It's only after God destroys this earth and there is nothing left here to covet that we will finally be done making idols out of the stuff here. It's just going to be a lifelong struggle. There's just always going to be something before our eyes that we're like, oh, if I could hold that. And then we get a hold of it, it's like, if I could hold more of that, it just keeps going. So until we leave this place, the only solution is to put these things to death, to starve them, stop feeding them. And you don't do that once, you do that every day. And if you feed it today, well, then you'd starve it tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Now, I don't know what your idols are. 
I've got, a, I've got a pretty good read on mine and what I struggle with. But what I do know, whether it's your idols or my idols, is they were not constructed overnight, and so they cannot be removed overnight. This is very, very important as I wrap up for you to understand this. We tend to think that we can quickly grow. Oh, I wish we could. Now, we can grow more quickly or not as quickly, but when it comes to the key idols of our life that we've constructed over time, it's just going to be a long slog to put those things to death. So, buck up your will. Don't get discouraged in the fight. And do the work of putting these things to death, the work of dismantling the patterns of sin. Now, one last key idea. The work of dismantling our patterns of sin occur primarily on level two. So I want you to circle, and maybe put a star around, don't go morally passive. This is where the fight really takes place. So the question is this. What needs to be cleaned up in your life? Is there a sin to confess? Is there a person that you need to ask forgiveness for? If so, do that. Secondly, what needs to be pruned from your life? Where, where is the fence that you're hanging out on, longingly looking into the forbidden land? How do you get further back from that fence? What needs to be pruned from your life? What's wasting your time on this? And no one can do this alone. We can't, we can't fight this alone. That's why the next two lists that we're going to look at after we eat deal with how to build relationships, how to actually love people. Because it turns out God sends all kinds of help to people. So you can't fight this on your own. So let me pray. Father, um, we thank you for how accurate your word is about the structures in our heart. And we recognize that the messages of our culture are telling us the, pretty much the exact opposite. That we, what we really need, what will really make us happy is something here and more of something here. And that we just need to follow our passions wherever they lead us. But the truth is, that's just going to take us over a cliff. We've all struggled and we all continue to struggle. So I pray that you would help us to put to death the things that are worldly in us. Help us to use the things that you've